0: Welcome back, Nod Pod. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of Chasing Heroin. Buckle in. This is a long one. I had the longest chat with Erin. We had so much to chat about. We have so much in common. In fact, I drop you in just like in our conversation, we were talking about writing an addiction memoir. And as we were talking, I was like, this is great. I'm just going to go ahead and hit record. So it's like you're just sitting in the living room with us. So we're chatting. We, of course, talk about her history. She shot heroin for the first time at 13 years old and her addiction progressed from there she does now have 20 years but it took a long time to get there and a lot of relapsing a lot of cold turkey kicking traveling you know she smoked crack on an airplane once which i've actually never met anyone that did you know her story is wild like like a lot of ours and Her integration of like the chaos of relationships is something that I wanted to highlight in her story because I feel like a lot of people, that's like part of it, right? Like the chaos of addiction, there's also the chaos with like a partner and there's like infidelity, cheating, yelling, you're using together, you're coming back together. And then some of that followed her into sobriety as well. And so there was like the chaos of relationships, even if she was abstinent from drugs and alcohol and she was in and out of 12 step a lot. And so we talk about what ultimately finally worked for her, what changed her life. And she also really focused on the mental health side of her recovery later. And that was a key component for her. So we talk about therapy, you know, medication, all of the things that she did to finally get her to the place where she could create a life, a life of recovery, which as defined by her is taking back ownership of your life, which I like that definition. I think recovery is just taking back ownership of your life. As an author, Erin is known for her writing on addiction, recovery, mental health, relationships, parenting, infertility, self-care, and occasionally her undying love for Beverly Hills, 90210. And y'all, I don't know if I've talked about this much on this show, but I love 90210. And so when I read that, I had to bring it up with her. And we even talk about your Beverly Hills 90210 astrological sign. So when you guys listen, if you have one, DM me because I want to know what your sign would be. Her weekly advice column, Ask Erin, is published on Ravishly. She lives in New York City with her husband and two sons. Strung Out is her first book. Strung Out is the book that we are talking about today. And I think you guys are really going to love this one. So as always, Nodpod, please let me know what you think of the episode. And I'll see you next week. Guys, we have you've heard me just chatting with Erin Carr. She wrote an amazing book called "Strung Out," a memoir of overcoming addiction. And you guys know, if you've been listening to, to the show, you've heard me say that like my goal is to write a book. I love interviewing authors, memoir authors. Thank you so much for being here. How are you? Absolutely, I'm good. How are I'm you, good. I good. now they're like twenty <laughs> minutes in. I appreciate you being here. I loved your books. I read a lot of this kind of literature and. I loved your book. I love that it was very, it was Thank like a combination you. of, you know, it's it's a timeline, which I like. I like the following. But then there's also conceptually, it's like philosophical and how you are feeling. And I feel like it kind of checks all of the boxes for like an experience, you know, with this type of work. Have you heard the phrase? I just interviewed somebody else that Dave recommended. She wrote the book from junkie to judge. And I asked her about this too. Have you heard the term mm-hmm. quit lit, like chitlet? Yes. I hate that yes. term. I, I hate it. It's so dumb. I do I'm like, too. no, I this know. is not the same. You know? Yeah. No. I was just curious no. what your thought on that was too, you know?
1: I mean, I don't really, call, I mean, to me, it's just. It's your life. It's just a, me- it's just a it's memoir. Your, I it, mean, and yes, it's an addiction memoir. So it's like a subgenre, but it's a memoir because it's like, I think the thing that I was hoping and that the thing that has made me the happiest is like how many people who've read the book who haven't had experiences with addiction and related to so much of, Sort of the interior stuff that was happening in the book. I think that's so important because that's how people start to build bridges between themselves and people they think of as other. Right. Yes, you know,
0: because yes. the human experience is the human experience, and there's all there's off. You know, there's pain, there's disappointment, there's frustration, there's lost dreams, there's trauma. Like you know, the the, the experience is shared, right? Even if the details are the same, like they say in 12 step, you know, the details are different, but like you said, the, the interior feelings are often the same, you know? Right.
1: Right. People realize that there are a lot of things that they can see how the jump from A to B isn't as far as they thought. Right,
0: (laughs) Totally. Totally. And it's a slow slide. Although with you, I do feel like it was a little, (laughs) it was kind of a jump when you were younger, but we'll talk about that, you know, shooting heroin. For the first time at a very yeah. young age with a needle, you know? Yeah. I did like the whole like smoke. Then I was out. I had a boyfriend who told me that my, you know, your fingertips get black on them when you smoke heroin. He was like telling me that my black, f- smudgy fingerprints, we were living in hotels, were gonna get us busted. So we needed to go to needles. And I was like, okay. <laughs> like, and like the logic <laughs> of that is not, but anyways. Right. <laughs> so there was definitely like a slow slide. But let's start with your background where you're from mm-hmm. and you know mm-hmm. how you got started using
1: Sure so I was born in Los Angeles grew up there my parents Divorced when I was seven or separated when I was seven. And it was around that time that I first started having what were panic attacks. I didn't know they were panic attacks, but I was starting to experience them. I'd been sexually abused when I was younger over, you know, an extended period of time. And I wasn't really that cognizant yet at that point at seven. Like I just knew that I felt panicked that. There was something wrong with me. And the panic it was sort of like a snowball because I would start to feel like the fact that I was panicking and felt so horrible or had thoughts about harming myself were proof that that I was, you know, a monster, that I was unlovable, like all of these things. And these tapes just would start playing in my head. And so at eight was the first time that I reached for a drug. Without kind of fully realizing that that's what I was doing. I was having a panic attack and I was in the bathroom and there was an expired bottle of Darvaset. and I didn't know what Darvacet was. It was my grandmother's. It must have been like after a surgery or something. It had been there for a while. I think my mom had it because she used to get migraines, but I don't think she even ever took one. They were just sitting there. And the reason that I took one is because there was a label on it that said may cause drowsiness. And it had like that little drawing of like a guy with a bubbly head. This was the 80s. There was no childproof (laughs) lock on this or childproof cap. So I had a very easy time, you know, opening it, I guess. (laughs) I took one and I really liked what it did for me because it stopped that sort of interior monologue I had going with this, like all this sort of self-hatred that I had and provided a buffer between me and my emotions and me and the world. And so from that point forward, I got started getting into the habit of I would take pills like anytime I was at like a relative's house or a friend's house, I would go into their parents' medicine cabinet and I would just sort of indiscriminately, I would take a couple of pills from anything that had a may cause drowsiness label. And like, thank God, like <laughs> I didn't accidentally kill myself that way because I didn't right. know...
0: I was you taking. could have come across I mean, like a Dilaudid or something, names. you know what I mean? I mean, I guess Dilaudid yeah, would have been yeah. a patch, but, or something extreme, you know?
1: Right. I mean, so, and then I think like, you know, at some point, I don't remember if my mom had this, or somebody in the family had like a physician's desk reference, and then I think I started looking things okay. up. I still didn't fully understand right. what was what, right. right? But that's when I started stealing pills and you know, it wasn't like super regular. I just would save them so then if I was having a panic attack I would take a pill. Okay. Then as you know, I entered adolescence, like freshly entered adolescence. I was 13 and like really having like struggling with with the feelings that that had been with me since since the age of 7 of of just this like self-loathing and feeling like if people could really see who I was, they wouldn't love me like that. You know, that was sort of the bottom line. I'd met this boy, teenager, at when I was skiing earlier that year and had told him that I was 15. <laughs> and at the time, I was 12. Oh, when I met my him. gosh. So I know. Right after my 13th birthday, I made a plan to, like, hang out with him. And my mom, I told my mom I was spending the night at a friend's house. And so he came and picked me up from the barn because I was horseback riding all the time then. And I went to his house and we were hanging out and I was getting like panicky. You know, his parents weren't there. We were like alone in this house. And I felt I was just like, you know, chattering away because I couldn't get really, really chatty. (laughs) And I especially got chatty then because (laughs) I was one of those people that was like, oh, if there can't be silence, I have to fill it with words. (laughs) I still feel that way, um,
0: but yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, I kind of do sometimes too. But I asked him if he had any Vicodin or Valium because I knew what those were, right? And he was really surprised. He had asked me if I wanted a drink and I said, no. I said, do you have a a Vicodin or Valium? (laughs) And he was like, not expecting that. And he was 16. And then he said, no, but have you ever tried heroin? And I was like, no. And he's like, Do you want to? And I was like, sure. And I it's funny because like when I've talked told people this story over the years, people are always like, I think like unsatisfied with this like jump that I took. But this is where it goes back to that idea of, you know, the addiction is there before the drugs enter your system. Like I just wanted out. I was I always describe it that like I was looking for an exit. I wanted an exit from my emotions. I wanted an exit from my past trauma. I wanted an exit from how I felt so uncomfortable in my own skin. So I just said, yes, he had an older brother who had, you know, who used like kind of, I guess, casually. <laughs> and so he was using casually. And so that was the first time I lost, I we, I shot up for the first time and lost my virginity and I was only 13. Is, and now I'm like, oh God, I was such a
0: baby. So, so I kind of get, I mean, that is a massive jump, but I have two questions. One, what do you think the LA factor is though here that like he was 16 So that's still very young. You were 13, you know, and I lived in L.A. for a long time. The kids there grow up fast. It's different. You're exposed to different things. It's a lot all the time. Do you think, and I I didn't think about this when I was reading your book. I'm just thinking about it now. Do you think the L.A. factor plays into any of this? It has to, right?
1: It does. But I would, I'd say that like today, there's such rampant drug use in suburbia that I don't even yeah. I think that it happens everywhere now. I can't even tell you, like, unfortunately, because of the fentanyl crisis, like how many parents I've connected with over the last few years who have teenagers who died from accidental fentanyl overdoses. And, you know, they're kids.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I also feel like, too, not to sound like some old lady, but like... I think social media made the world so much more like the idea of using drugs and social media wouldn't have been around then, obviously, or when, when I was getting started. But now, like, right. you see people getting high and talk about using it's so much more. It's not like it's accepted, but it's visible when you see someone that kind of looks like you and doesn't look like a junkie on the street, you know, quote, Mm-hmm. and they're partying I just feel like it opens all those doors a little bit more because you're like oh well it's kind of normal like this kid is doing coke or they're doing co-. like you know what I mean I'm sh- for you sure for sure
1: the- now at school like so I went to a prep school and you know his family had a lot of money and at my prep school like my friends were not doing drugs that said there was a lot of cocaine at my school like because it was a seventh through twelfth grade prep school okay. so like for sure. With the upper school, there was a ton of Coke. Okay. I didn't know of anyone there doing heroin, but like my friend group, like people were experimenting with drugs. And that's the funny thing. Like I wasn't getting drunk or like trying pot or anything
0: with anything anyone. I was the same way. <laughs> I did not like drinking and I did not like smoking weed. And I ended up liking yeah, I Coke like, way more. But see, I do think it's kind of the only right. thing because at my school, I was from a, a fairly affluent neighborhood, in, but in Georgia, mm-hmm. there was no Coke in my mm-hmm. high school. People smoked, but they right, were okay. Right, right. And so I do think there's some element of, oh, you know, what sure. I mean, being in LA and you know, like the prep school element of things. You know, so
1: oh, a hundred percent. Because I mean, I, I I always say that, like, I mean, I don't know that I would send. I mean, I didn't. My Atticus went to a like a small private school briefly in Los Angeles, which was a very different vibe. But I'm not a huge fan of prep schools <laughs> because, and I know now, like even from like speaking with my son, like about kids he knew that went to like some of the like biggest, fanciest prep schools here in New York City and like how much cocaine they yes. do and like how much... Like, it's uh, like it's crazy, yeah, yeah. you know? I mean, it's not cry whatever. I no, but I know talk, what you mean, but it's I, wild. I, it's I was a, off and running. But it's, it's exaggerated. It, there's a lot yeah, happening, yeah. right? And yeah, I mean, I think part of the reason that I was able to hide my addiction for so long is that at that time, this is like pre-opioid crisis, so people didn't look at me and think that I looked like a drug addict. You know, I came from like a quote-unquote good family. We had money. I got really good grades. I had a lot of friends. You know, and for a while, like I had things very, very controlled in the way that I was using because it, for me, it was never about like the party. Right.
0: So you were, you, know? you would just use with that guy because you ended up dating him for a while, right? For kind of a long time. Yeah,
1: for almost two right. years. Yeah, you would just
0: use with him, you would like shoot heroin on the weekends as a 13-year-old, mm-hmm. right? And that went on for some time, right? Or like you said, about two years. Yeah,
1: I mean, I wasn't, I think it took a while before I started, like the first time that I felt any sort of dope sickness is that like right around the time my grandmother passed away, this was like a year into me using, I took some home, but I wouldn't take a needle home. Okay and at that time i mean like it's so funny cuz like when i was like older and using like i never would get like powdered heroin in la but that
0: we had that at that time yeah now it was <laughs> just know, tar that was what he was oh getting. okay i think yeah. it's just now i think it's just fentanyl but that was just tar when i was using i didn't think there was powdered yes. ever oh okay i didn't know that
1: there i mean I, you know i i was only getting it like from right. him okay okay yeah. you know so so i wasn't like going out and like copping myself right, at right. that point or anything you know and and I, You know, I've said this, I think that, it, like, I knew other people who used, like, later on, I knew people who used kind of casually, like, in the mid to late 90s, like, late 90s, who never got strung out. And, like, they just kind of, like, every once in a while, and, like, some of them, like, even tried shooting up. I'm like, it's so wild to me, like, that there are people how many people I knew who experimented with With heroin. heroin.
0: (laughs) That is kind of crazy. I don't, I'm just thinking, do I know anyone that experimented with heroin? I don't think I do. I don't think I do. I've known addicts in recovery who would be like chipping for a little while, but they would end up getting Mm -hmm. strung out again. You know,
1: but- But I don't know if you remember like the first time, like, I feel like it takes a long time to get strung out the first time you get strung out. And then it feels like, even when I started using again, because I had a period of time where, you know, I was still doing other things, pills and stuff. But I, I had that like chunk of time between teenage years and like early 20s where I didn't use for a few years heroin. And when I started using heroin again, even then, like I felt like it took me a second before I got... Like really strung out, and so yeah, so that whole time I didn't, I was able to really control it, and then I also started like doing a little speed, yeah. and you yeah. know, and you know, definitely pills. But like, not if I ever had alcohol, it was usually with my family in like a very social way. Like, alcohol was never a part of my yeah. story. Yeah. It was, it was like nice, whatever. Like, have a glass of yeah. wine, have a toast, whatever. But it just wasn't my right, thing, right, right. and I just didn't even like pot. I didn't even try it. I was just like.
0: It didn't went straight to the hard stuff, Uh, but you also and then I tried coke and stuff too. You didn't know because we're talking about that jump too to heroin. You didn't consciously know (laughs) though at that point that you had been abused yet, right? Didn't you kind of figure it out later? Which is which is interesting too. It was like it was living in you without you knowing.
1: It was that thing of like like the first time I and I write about this in the book like the first time that I did heroin and had sex, I I was so you know obviously in this state of like disconnection from my body. And I remember feeling like there were things happening sexually where I was like, I just, I had that like sort of pulsing thought in the back of my head, like that there was something familiar about being touched or be, you know, it just, but it just, I couldn't quite connect the dots. And I, and I felt like this, Feeling of not love like, being like a secret monster. I just always like I always described it as like feeling like people would discover like I was a monster. <laughs> I think of that movie The Craft. I don't know if you. Remember oh yeah, the witch it. movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And there was a thing that they did called like, a glamour, which is where like they could like like shake their head like get somebody to see whatever they wanted to see. And I used to feel like that was the thought that would always go through my head. I felt like if somebody found me physically attractive or if they liked me or loved me or whatever it was, it was a glamor. Like I had somehow unconsciously tricked them into seeing something that wasn't there. And so I never trusted other people's feelings towards me.
0: Interesting. And well, and like you said, though, that kind of makes sense with the idea that like addiction is present before the drug is, there's all these like traits and kind of characteristics that can kind of, you know, that can kind of build up to this. So you're doing heroin with the guy early on. Eventually you guys break up. And then Mm -hmm. how do things like start to escalate over time for you from there?
1: Sure. So I would, I'd kind of have like ups and downs. I mean, I definitely was struggling with my mental health, like through all of this, you know, and then I'd have times where like I was doing a lot of speed and then I'd back off of it. And, you know, definitely pills were always coming into the picture. And I think, you know, I didn't recognize it necessarily as pill seeking behavior, but I definitely was like, I mean, I stole pills from like everybody's fucking medicine cabinet, <laughs> and I wouldn't take the whole yeah. thing. I just would take a few, right. but everywhere yeah. I went, like, but
0: you a- graduate <laughs> high school, right? You graduate high school, yeah, yeah, I
1: graduated high school early and then went to started college and then dropped out and then went back and dropped you know I was like all over the place. I mean, you know. Again, like, you know, graduated from high school early, started at USC. And then I just, I don't know, I was just lost. You know, I got, I can see such a through line also sort of like with my sort of like sex and love addiction stuff too, because I i was constantly in and out of relationships, in and out of affairs, cheating. I mean, I was a mess. It's the behavior is just so tied in with my my drug addiction. There was a
0: lot of that in your story of of seeing one guy and talking to somebody else and talking to this person Mm -hmm. over here. But you're right. And I think that those... It makes sense to me that those behaviors were all sort of intertwined. And that is something that I want to talk to you about. Some of that like lasted into your recovery too, because that happens, Yeah, right? We bring some yeah. of those behaviors with us. You did share one story sure. in your uh, – several stories in your book that, that stood out to me. There was a day that you were like dope sick, and you put on a green sweater, mm-hmm. and you went to go shopping. I don't know how you did, but you like got yourself around. And the heroin addicts listening will understand this moment. You got home – and or you were in one of the stores, and you took your sweater off. I was
1: in. The, I was in the. I was in the bathroom of the Plaza Hotel. I had taken myself to have high tea at the Palm Court, which is something because my dad moved to New York when I was after my parents separated. So I would go back and forth a lot. And when I was a little kid, I would go to the Palm Court with my dad, or that when my mom and dad were kind of on and off a lot. So my mom would come to New York, and we'd go to the Palm Court. And I was going to the bathroom again. And you you can finish it. (laughs) She
0: found heroin in her sweater, stuck to her sweater. That is the most, that happened to me. I actually, I did a whole episode about this recently. That happened to me once. I was dope sick traveling. Yeah. And I knew I was out. I had nothing left. And I had a long layover before I got back to L.A., And I looked in my purse and I found some and the feeling when you're sick and you find some, like Mm -hmm. when I read that part in your story, I was like, Oh, I'm so happy for Aaron back then. I'm happy you're clean, but I'm really happy (laughs) for you that day. You know, I'm happy for me back then too. I was, it was, it was like, Oh God. And
1: you know, just roll. And that I had like a little, like one of those collars, it was almost like an unfinished hem. So it rolled a little bit and so it was in, like, the little rolled yeah. collar. And it was
0: tar, right? So it was stuck to it, I'm sure, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It was a good yeah. chunk. <laughs> and, like, the relief that you get immediately. Like, I was sitting at the mm-hmm. airport. I was sitting at the gate, and I was being such a bitch to the the desk person. I was like, when are we leaving? When is the flight? And I'm, like, trying to do all the math in my head thinking how sick I'm going to be. And then when I saw it in my purse, I literally immediately, like, didn't even feel sick anymore. And I was like, <gasps> And I stood up and this is so like nerdy and dorky that I did this, but I swear on my life I did this. I literally, I've never done this before or since I like (laughs) moonwalked a few steps backwards. I did like a little dance in the gate and then like spun on my heel and I was like, oh, thank God. Like it was just such a relief. And when I read that part in your story, I was like, wow, (laughs) like I feel that. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's so many times that I left out in the book, but one of my like weird things that I did, like I cold (laughs) turkey'd. Hundreds of times and often while traveling, often traveling internationally. I don't know
0: what, I don't I know how thinking. you did that. Yes. I, I avoided doing, my last kick was cold Turkey ish. And prior to that, I refused, I refused. And you did, you yeah. kind of did it a lot. My husband is like that. He would just oh, run time. out of dope out of town. He was a pill addict. He would just run out of pills mm-hmm. and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm sorry. I need to understand then. So you would go on a trip without enough to get through and he was like, or like, I would have enough, but I would do them all on the plane. This is, this is what my problem is and that like, I, I would have enough
1: and I'd be rationing myself, but then I would fuck up my right. ration. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, and, and you know, I mean, oh my God, because a lot of this was like pre 9-11. Yeah. And
0: I mean, some of it. Oh, you smoked in the bathroom on a plane, okay. right? I yeah, Did smoked Did you smoke crack, crack? <laughs> Mm-hmm. How did they not know? So I've only smoked crack once well, and it was on weed. And so I mm-hmm. don't know if there's a certain, mm-hmm. and I hated it. I don't know if there, is there a real certain crack smell that somebody else would have noticed? There is a, there is a crack smell if you have okay, smoked Okay, crack. okay, okay, okay. Yes. Okay.
1: But it does not. The smoke doesn't linger the way that like cigarette or weed okay, smoke does. Okay, yeah. do you know what I mean? And there's not. It's not that distinctive okay. a smell. It's just sort of like, like a, chemical a chemically smell, yeah. sort of smell. This is so, so so gross. But I would just. I was like leaning down, blowing the smoke into the toilet On bowl. The
0: it, it's so stupid. <laughs> and then didn't you get really paranoid so, and, and this, tell your boyfriend? You were like, they know, they so know. I was. I'm <laughs> gonna get her. I I was convinced <laughs> that they were talking about me. That I was getting arrested. And then I kept going. I kept
1: going back to the bathroom and doing it again. (laughs) So, I mean, I hated crack so much and I couldn't stop doing it. I hated it. Like that, even though like, you know, after that relapse and I went to rehab again, like I had other relapses after that, but that was by far the worst shape I was ever
0: in. I was out of control. That's so interesting to me too, because I kind of felt that way about heroin. I kind of in ways hated heroin, you know, the gross the gross smell and all that stuff in ways. I hated mm-hmm. it, but I kept doing it anyways. I smoked crack once mm-hmm. it was on weed and I immediately was mm-hmm. soaked in sweat and I got so scared. Mm-hmm. It's one of the only times that like fear actually stopped me from using again. And I did a lot of Coke at the time, but I didn't end up doing right. it again. But that, that traveling around actually reminds me of another story that you shared in the book that I wanted to ask you about. You went and found a connect in like New Jersey, right? In like the, in No, Providence, Rhode Island. Okay, you found someone (laughs) and you would continue seeing him. And then this was so heartbreaking. He was shot and you ended up buying from a 12-year-old instead, which you talk about a little bit in the book. Yeah, who
1: he said he was his cousin. But like, I mean, I don't know if he was his cousin or what. But that is like one of those, that was a part that was really hard to write about because, you know, I think so much when we talk about like, the drug crisis in America, we think about people using drugs and like, oh, punish all the drug dealers and blah, 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 blah. And from my point of view, the majority, vast majority of people who are dealing drugs are there also because they are caught in the same fucked up ecosystem. They are born into systemic racism and poverty and a system that does not offer any other road out right. of it, out right. of where they are.
0: And that's kind of why I wanted to bring it up because that's something mm-hmm. I've heard you speak about. And it's something that it's important for me, for people to understand too, we have similar backgrounds. And mm-hmm. by the time I was using a lot, I, I had no assistance. So I was going to like, I was going to like parole funded programs and stuff like that later, but, mm-hmm. but, but privilege is ins- insidious. And and the way that it looked for totally. me was this. So sure, I'm in like a down in the dregs program later at 34, but I was in right. a work program with people and it was me and mainly Hispanic women. And mm-hmm. it was a rehab for women and children. Some of the, I actually mm-hmm. didn't have kids, but they let me go there. And some of them had been born there because their moms were there mm-hmm. 20 years prior. And we would go to our work program and we would start to put together resumes. And mm-hmm. I had worked I had worked in high school. I had worked a little bit in college. I had some college. I didn't finish college, but somebody paid for me to have SAT tutors, right? I spoke well. Mm -hmm. My parents modeled professional behavior. Somebody paid for me to go to the dentist. You know, when we were putting resumes together, I would think like, I already know what's going to happen. And we would leave and I would get a job that day because nobody even ran my background check. I would walk in and apply for a job. No one even ran my check. And we would come back. They couldn't get a job. It was a completely different world for them, and it had nothing Mm -hmm. to do with our level of intelligence or our desire to be clean or our desire to be in society. It had everything to do with something I was gifted, and that had nothing to do Mm -hmm. with me. And it's like that's what and and, and I heard you say this in another podcast too. It was still hard mm-hmm. for me and for you. It was very hard for me to stop using into to work. Very. And I had all mm-hmm. those benefits. And it's like, you know, and yep. that's why I loved, I do love that you shared that in your story and I'm sure that it was hard, but you were like, I am part of the problem. You know, here I am, this white woman coming yeah. into this neighborhood, buying from this kid. I'm making this problem worse. And I I yep. feel and felt that way too, you know? And it's like, and I Mm -hmm. try to share that when I can, because sometimes if you look at my story from the outside, it looks really grim. And like, I didn't have a lot of advantages Mm -hmm. because I didn't later as an adult, but I sure did growing Mm -hmm. up. And it changes the landscape when you have that benefit, you know?
1: I mean, even just like being like an objectively attractive young white woman, like is an advantage. I mean, I got pulled over, I don't even know, like, 17 times I, I i'm like it's like 17 or 20 something i can't remember but i got pulled over an inordinate number right. of times and never got a right. ticket and i usually had drugs right. in my yeah. car you know i mean drove around with like a suitcase of crystal meth in my car for a month i mean like so right. stupid and it's because i just i didn't even understand that I. i didn't that. either
0: i didn't either i do now I didn't then. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, I understood. I started, there were things that I understood. But in terms of like my ignorance of like, it wasn't that I was so bold. I just didn't even consider it because I wasn't profiled. Right. Right.
0: And I was, yeah, exactly. We weren't profiled.
1: I had a nice car. Like, you know. It makes a huge
0: difference because later, and I do know because later I got arrested all the time because I was a homeless person Mm -hmm. with a picked up face Mm -hmm. and I did not look like, you know what I mean? It changes the landscape, right? It changes the game. And so I try to, I try to share that because I don't ever want anybody to listen to my story because I did like, I got, I bought a business at four years clean and like all these things. And sometimes Mm -hmm. I'm like, but I really need it to be clear that I like had all of these advantages early on, and so I right. appreciate that you shared about that as well because it changes the game. And to Thank me, you. when right. somebody like my sponsor, my sponsor was raised very differently than I was. She was a you know sex mm-hmm. worker for a long time, stopped at thirty eight years mm-hmm. old, no real formal education, and she just went to Paris. She's working on her thesis for her doctorate, and it's like it's awesome. so cool. So yeah, great. and I'm like. And I mean, I'm proud of myself for being clean, of course, but like when I look at something like that, I'm like, that was so far outside the scope of what she even would have thought was possible. And so it's like, you know, it's just, it's even more amazing to me when, you know, when people are Mm -hmm. able to do that. And it it struck me when you shared that about that, the way that you wrote that was, was very beautifully written. The way that you express like feeling part of the problem at that time, you know, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. then something else that you mentioned in the book. Oh, I actually have this is a different note talking about like the men and the in and out right someone tried to poison you yeah dude
1: <laughs> I know I don't know why I always laugh no. when I tell
0: the story it's just because it's, it's so crazy, crazy. I laughed I out like, loud when oh I my, read oh it oh my god
1: <laughs> it's like I don't know if you remember that movie from the 90s like love you to death where like it's Tracy Ullman gets river phoenix and and uh Keanu Reeves to like poison try and poison her husband I don't I don't think I've seen like it that.
0: So I remember I was like, oh my God, it's like that movie. (laughs) No, I laughed out loud too when you wrote it. I was like, wait, what? Okay, so share the story if you don't mind.
1: Sure. So I was 19 at the time. I was in a relationship with somebody who was six years, eight years older than me. So we moved in with each other when, I don't yeah, I was 18 when we moved in with each other and he was 26. So yeah, eight years older. And he was a musician, and then his, like, day job was really at night. He would do, at the time, they would have this, like, company, these companies go into, like, Rite-Aids and whatnot. They would inventory their pharmacies. It was, like, a, I guess, a way of checking their inventory, making sure, like, things weren't slipping through the cracks or whatever. But he used to steal pills, like, bottles of pills (laughs) all the time. And, you know, so, which was great for me. (laughs) And I was a nightmare. I mean, he had his issues, too, but, like, I was... A nightmare. I was not faithful. I was crazy. I acted out all the time. I mean, I was a kid, you know, this was like a very, very crazy period of my life. (laughs) And he broke up with me like kind of unexpectedly. And I was planning on breaking up with him. And then I was so devastated that he broke up with me. And, you know, I mean, he broke up with me. I came home from like a weekend trip to San Francisco and I walk in the door and my mom is in our apartment. (laughs) He called my fucking mom (laughs) because he was afraid of what my reaction would be. (laughs) And then, of course, I had a really outsized (laughs) reaction. And then we were like, he moved to San Francisco. And then we were kind of still seeing each other and talking. And then one day he was like, I really don't think we should see each other or talk anymore. And I was like, why? And he's like, well, I need to tell you something. And He's like, do you remember like in January you got really sick? We'd eaten pasta, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, I put 30 Phenobarbital in your spaghetti. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, I'm thinking back, like I'm on the phone thinking like, oh God, I thought I had food oh poisoning. But God. then I was like, but then he didn't get sick. So then I was like, oh, I'm like, when I had the stomach flu and then it was like, you know, like in slow motion, like all the pieces coming together. And then I was like, motherfucker. And I just was like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we should ever (laughs) talk or see each other again either. And I hung up and I never talked to him or saw him again. That is so
0: crazy. Do you think he knows you wrote about it in the book? I don't know. I mean, we never
1: spoke again. I did look him. I like tried to find information on him. And like, I remember like years ago, I said he had like a MySpace page and maybe I found a Facebook page. He was like a musician still. In San Francisco, still living in San Francisco. The last time I checked, I don't know how this like me, sometime in the last 10 years, I had yeah. looked him, tried to find him to see if he was still alive or like what was happening and lying about his age <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> because he was older than me. And he was like, I think, you know, whatever, he was lying about his age. And I was like, motherfucker, I don't know, I have no idea if he knows about yeah. the book, has seen it, read it, or anything. But I mean, he'll certainly know that but that's dude, him. Are- and then like I told people kind of casually after the fact, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm like, he
0: totally he tried, tried to kill, kill me. me. So like, but the addict women listening though will understand why I also I kind of laughed at that and you kind of laughed at that because it's like, Yeah, you know, you tried to kill me. That's probably kind of fair, you know, like
1: It was and then also like my fucking tolerance was so <laughs> didn't high even work. for drugs. Yeah. But like now, I'm like thirty phenobarbital. I had never, I never took phenobarbital. Like I didn't even, I don't even know if they still make it anymore. I don't think they anymore. do. I don't even know what it. I feel like no, it's gone the was, way of quaaludes. Was, uh,
0: to me, it's like the quaalude right? era. Yeah.
1: I never took a I quaalude. So phenobarbital, like he had it obviously. So it, this was like 1993. Oh my Gosh. So yeah, yeah crazy. A, it was, and but I now I think it's so funny. And My parents are like horrified. <laughs> They're like, we should have pressed charges. I'm like, what? Call the police and say, well my ex-boyfriend confessed to like trying to poison right. me six months ago. But also
0: like <laughs> in these addict worlds, like I have a friend who he was definitely trying to, he was like trying to kill me when I, I think like we went behind, mm. he was driving. I had, I had bought 20 bucks worth of heroin. And so I had the money and he drove me. And so, cause I didn't have a car. So I was going to break him off. Mm-hmm. Right. And I bought it mm-hmm. and we're in the car and it's in my bra and he starts going behind like these buildings really slow and looking around. And I was like, and he was like, all right, give me the dope. And I was like, well, I'm going to give you a piece of it. And he was like, no, that's right. not how this is going to work. Give it all to me. And he's going real slow. And I was like, I think, and, and I'm like, no, that's not how it works. And again, you guys listening that do drugs, right. like, no, I break you off. Cause I bought it. Like you gave me a ride. So I'm going to give right. you some, but you don't get all of it. This is not how this works. And he had given me a little butter. He was like a gangster kind of guy. He had given me a little butterfly knife, like months before and mm-hmm. it was in my purse and he's mm-hmm. slowing down. And I'm start thinking like, I think he's going to kill me for $20 worth of heroin, like how he's acting. And I undid the knife in my bag. And I'm not like a gangster chick Mm -hmm. who can fight or anything, but like, and he kind of lunged for me and I pulled the butterfly knife out and I was, "Ah!" and I like cut his hand a little bit and he looked and in (laughs) Spanish, he said, did you just stab me with my own fucking knife? And I was like, Javi, you were gonna kill me, you were, and he kind of started laughing, and he was like, I wasn't really, and I was like, No, you were gonna kill me. I know you were gonna kill me. Go out to the street, and we both started like laughing, and I just stabbed him, I had nicked him, and he was like bleeding a little, <laughs> and we were both laughing, and like that was the exchange that we had. I was like, No, you were gonna kill right. me, you were, admit it, and he was like, No, nah, right. I wasn't really, and I'm like, You got but like in the <laughs> drug world, I feel like that's the kind of weird shit that happened you know what I mean. I'm like it was so weird, and and the thing that it was funny.
1: All my friends were like, also jokingly said, like, it's totally the fact that you've taken so right. many pills yeah, and saved yeah. you.
0: <laughs> that saved you. Yeah, exactly, because you had a tolerance. That was yeah. yeah. That, that's that's a wild experience. <laughs> the <laughs> other thing that you and I have in common is I also love nine hundred two one zero. I am obsessed ah! with nine hundred two one zero, but. I am more <gasps> obsessed with the college years than the high school years. Oh, I love Oh, you do? Okay, because sometimes years. people think that yeah. that's not oh, legit. Yeah. And I have this no. theory about like, I have my and 90210 theory where like the person that you relate to the most on the show, I think kind of like says a little bit about like you and your life because mine changed from I wanted to be Kelly Taylor and then mm-hmm. I wanted to be Valerie Malone. And that is a shift. Ooh. You know what I mean? That is. Oh, that is. I dyed my hair dark. (laughs) Like, I wanted to be like Valerie. Who was your favorite? Right. I mean, I think
1: Dylan. Okay. Forever. Like, see, I'm a Brandon girl. So I feel like. It's so funny. I went on this, uh, there's this 90210 podcast that isn't around anymore, but it was like the only one for a while called The Blaze, okay. 90210, The Blaze. And it was it was great. They got like tons of, uh, Jason Priestley went on, like tons oh, cool. of guests. And I know now Jenny Garth and Tori Spelling have They've their 90210 OMG, yeah. which I, yeah. I like it. I really like their podcast, but this was before that. And I was a guest on their show once and they would always ask their guests like of the characters, like who's your... Who's your astrological character? Like, like, you know, like, and who's your rising? So I love you know, that be Like, I'm a brand I'm a Brandon with a David <gasps> Rising. And I always said that I was a Dylan with a Kelly okay. rising. Because I was like, I'm either a Kelly with a Dylan rising or a Dylan with a Kelly rising because they were the characters who I related right. to the most. Not physically. I mean, obviously, just in terms of like what people thought about them, some of their like woo. Right?
0: Yeah, totally. <laughs> and <their> totally.
1: <laughs> and so, yeah, those were those were the characters I related to the most, for I sure. I love
0: that question. I think I'm a Kelly with a Valerie rising, mm-hmm. possibly. Mm-hmm. But I yeah. also really related to, this is really annoying, I related to Susan. You remember Susan, Brandon's? I do. Yeah, really? because, <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> because that's like the real me pre-drugs is like, You know, Uh, she was real like like I debated, and I was very like independent. She was like annoyingly independent. Like I was like like that kind of. And so I don't count her as one of the main characters, obviously. But like, oh my god, I just remember the story. This is so like this just shows like kind of how also damaged I was. I was at something's fishy in Malibu, the sushi restaurant in Malibu. (laughs) Yeah. And Tracy, the actress who plays Tracy, Uh sat down next Uh to me.
1: I never liked that character. The
0: worst. The worst. <laughs> and my friend, Gumpy, actually, and you guys will know Gumpy. He was on the episode a few weeks ago. He was my guest. He was sitting next mm-hmm. to me. I was so obsessed with like my weight and being skinny for acting that I made him stand up and look be- get stand behind us and look down at us and tell me to see who was yeah, there. <laughs> between me and Tracy. He claimed <laughs> that I was. In the moment, so I don't know if that was true or not. Is that fucked up? Such like an LA girl thing oh, to do. I
1: totally I understand <laughs> though. I mean, it was like you know, I, I get it. Like this is what we were. This fed. is what we were. Fed. And then, I mean, are not fed, not fed, or not, yeah. <laughs> and also, like I mean, I also think like you know, in the '90s, it's like this sort of like whole heroin chic yeah. thing. Like that was like I wrote something about that for Times of London Sunday Magazine about like you know, like I didn't look like the girls in the 80s, like with the blonde hair. And like, you know, I was always a little like darker, yeah. a little ethnic. I mean, even though, you know, I'm white, and like, have like a Persian dad. So like, I, I didn't look like the people around me necessarily. And so I think like with heroin chic, I was like, oh, I can do that kind right. of a girl. I can be that kind sure. of a girl. I know how to do that.
0: That does work for you, that look. or it di- You know mm-hmm. what I mean? For, yeah. For sure. That, that yeah. kind of makes sense. I don't know if you remember this
1: in the book, but I had a friend who, like, for some reason, I, like, on that same trip to New York when I, with the green sweater, who I, like, confessed to her that, like, I'd been, like, I was totally strung out. And she's like, oh, my God, like, the heroin chic thing is totally working for you. And she was dead <laughs> serious. And I'm like, but it's killing me. And we just laughed. <laughs>
0: but it's killing me. Oh, the the damage of women. Dude, when I got to (laughs) detox the last time, I remember getting on the scale and I was like, oh, Mm -hmm. at least I'm skinny. That's cool. You know what I mean? Like there was that part. And I know that that's like a common thing. That's like, you know, we woven into our addiction, especially as women. And back then too, I think people don't really realize 90s, 2000s, like the whole like Lindsay Lohan, Britney Spears, all that stuff when they were like, skinny and fabulous and going crazy. I, we're, I'm the same age as all of them. And I was in LA at the mm-hmm. same time. And like,
1: mm-hmm. you know, remember
0: like the articles about Jessica Simpson looking fat and she was not big. If you yes. go back and look at that picture and it's like, oh my the God. inclusivity campaigns that are around now are so great. And I think like, how I know. would I have felt if I'll see models sometimes and they got cellulite on them in in the picture. And I'm like, wow! For sure, I really wish that would have been a thing when I was reading Seventeen magazine when I was 16 years old. You know what I mean? And I think sometimes people don't realize like the value of that inclusivity. Like the you know the Little Mermaid, they have the African American girl. That makes me want to cry because I'm like, no, I can't even imagine literally never being represented in anything I saw ever. And I never thought about that till recently. But can you imagine how nice it would be like to be like, oh look. Me. Yes. I mean, I, like, obviously,
1: like, I, my experience is, like, minuscule compared to people who are more identifiable as other. But even just, like, I grew up in a suburb of Los Angeles that, like, around really fucking white people. (laughs) And my mom is, like, blonde and, like, Swedish. And, you know, everybody would always be like, oh, your mom is so beautiful. You look nothing like her. (laughs) (laughs) And... Even, like, I think about then, like, I could maybe do a Snow White, but my skin was a little right, olive. Yeah. Even when I was pale, yeah. it was still a little yeah. olive So, and then, like, when Aladdin came out, everybody freaking called me Princess Jasmine. And I'm just like, if I had a dollar for every time somebody, including people I dated, called me Princess Jasmine, I'm like...
0: <sighs> but did that make you feel good? <laughs> like, Stop. Like... Or no, no because okay. it felt like tokeny. Okay. <laughs> but, okay. but my point, but but
1: it was nice to see somebody who wasn't like white, sure, And sure, sure.
0: like super blonde, super attractive or, role, or, like, right? You know, like presented as the lead yeah, or whatever, yeah. you know? I yeah. know sometimes I think about that. And that was, you know,
1: and obviously, like, I still could kind of see myself. I mean, I could still see myself in, on TV in terms of like people that, like, it didn't feel like a leap, Right, you know yes, what I mean? yes, But, so I can only, can only imagine for somebody, especially for anybody who's black, it's, you know, there's just, it was such a dearth right. of representation, yeah, no representation for so I know, long. I know, That, that yeah. makes me, like,
0: cry. Like, on TikTok, there are those, they'll show girl, little girls, her coming up out of the water mm. singing and, they, and they're just like, their faces, yeah. like, it just, like, makes me cry. But yeah. I digress. I seriously digress from your recovery story. <laughs> so let's get back to this. So, um, <sighs> Series of relapses, lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and (laughs) lots of relapses, you know, and I bring that up because I did some relapsing myself. I hate the term chronic relapser, right? It's so like, it's it's Mm -hmm. so like facility or like institutional, you know, to say chronic relapser, but people know what we mean when I say that. And you did finally break out of that. Talk about your last, what did your last use look like or towards the end? I mean,
1: my last, so my last couple months of using, I was pregnant, And I wasn't, I was just chipping to not get sick while I figured out what the fuck I was going to do. I didn't want to go on methadone. And I found my friend helps me find a doctor who was willing to detox me over seven days using buprenorphine. And so, and this was 2003, So I think the last time that I used, it wasn't even like I used that much. I mean, it was like the end of my using was so boring. And so the last couple of years of like relapses, they were like short. Like I would do like, I do like a few weeks and then I'd stop and then I would do a month and then I'd stop and then I do, you know, so that's how I'd been. But like, I think when I was pregnant, I'd probably been back on for like a little over a month. Okay maybe not even that long, but I was already like, you know, a week in and I'd be dope sick. So honestly, like three days in, I would be dope sick. So uh, yeah, I mean, I think the last time that I used, I don't even really remember particularly where I was. It was probably, actually, I do know where I was. (laughs) I take that back. I was in my car because I was pregnant and I was the, you know, my first husband, we weren't, like things were so bad between us, so I had gone to like stay at my mom's, and I uh used in the car, and then the next day, like my friend went with me to go to this doctor, and I did the buprenorphine for seven days, and that was wow. it. So it was very like a very, very <laughs> right because you
0: also overdosed. You have an overdose story, and that wasn't the end. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? So no,
1: yeah. no, but that was the last time I used a needle, oh, it was. which I can't. Okay, yeah, yeah, I never. And my friend diana in the book she never used a needle again after that we both stopped using needles which is insane normally people don't get scared by that
0: you know what i mean we we should should. but we don't
1: you know i mean i think that like for me i realized that like even though i had a death wish i if if i i didn't want anyone to find me because she was, so, I mean, she says that was like the most traumatic thing she's ever been through. It was really yeah, traumatizing. Yeah, I'm sure. And I think that for her, she would probably say this too, that like, I think like our friendship was so codependent that it was just like, I mean, she, so she stopped using drugs right after I did, like did the same thing as I did a couple weeks later with the same doctor oh, with buprenorphine. Okay. And so we both have been in recovery for 20 wow. years, which is insane.
0: Yes. Like, That's insane. such a long time. I can't believe you've been, you've been clean for 20 years That's crazy. That's wild. After that long of trying off and on and off (laughs) and on and off and on. But,
1: and I didn't think, and I really, I didn't, you know, and at that point I was just like, I was so, I had relapsed so many times and like so many people didn't believe anything that I came out of my mouth. I couldn't go back. I was like, I can't go back to meetings. I can't. And then it kind of forced me to try things that were different. And that was like when I started doing Kundalini yoga and which is something like I've fallen out of practice doing. And I was just talking to a friend about today. Like I really should go back because it is such a grounding thing for me. And I was not a yoga person before that at all. I was just like, well,
0: and I I kind of want to talk about that your, your recovery journey. Mm -hmm. So a huge part of it is, and I have this, I have this marked in the book is you have your son, right? So you detox while you're pregnant. And then this is so Mm -hmm. beautiful in your book. You write, we looked into each other's eyes, Atticus and I, oh, it's you. I thought I knew him. And then you say, I love him more than I hate myself. I love him more than I hate myself. And Mm -hmm. that's what changed everything for you, right? Yeah.
1: (laughs) I get all emotional hearing it back. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was really because I was not, I didn't think that I was, I don't even know why I decided to have the baby. You know, it was like, uh, I was like, I never wanted to be a mother. I didn't think I would be a good mother. I was a wreck. My parents had contingency plans because, you know, it wasn't a question of like, you know, they thought for sure I would relapse at some point. I thought I would relapse at some point. I thought like I can, I can hack it until the end of the pregnancy. But I didn't, you know, I was married to somebody I didn't love who didn't, love me. You know what I mean? And like, I just, I don't know. I I didn't have any like maternal, I didn't feel connected to the baby at all. And then like, it was literally that. Like I just saw him and I was just like, oh, it's you. Um, I know you. (laughs) And it was that. I just had that like thought repeating in my head so clear. Like, I love you more than I hate myself. And I, I just made that commitment in that moment that I was like, and I know you can't get sober for other people, but it was the catalyst I needed because I didn't have enough love for myself to to sustain it or do it then. But I was like, I just was like, I'm not going to leave this fucking legacy for this kid. I'm not. I'm just not. And I might not be perfect. I may do it really imperfectly, but I am not going to abandon him or put him through trauma. And, you know, obviously, you know, and I always like to give this caveat after I say that because I, have so many friends who used after they became parents or relapsed, uh you know, after they were parents. And that is not a reflection on how much love they had for their child or have for their child in any way. It's, I was really lucky. I had resources in terms of like, I had as dysfunctional as my family may have been at times, my parents never Abandon right. me in terms of like support, right. financial and emotional support. Right. I had friends. I had a network of people who cared for me. Even when I felt like I didn't, Yeah, I did. Yeah. And, you know, I had the ability to, you know, I was in, a, in the position because my family was helping me where like I could just focus on being a mom. I wasn't working. I just was like, okay, you just need to be a mom. And you need to get up in the morning and take care of yourself so that you can take care of this baby. And so, you know, then it was like about being out of the house and walking and like go doing yoga. Like that was like, you know, the mommy and me yoga. And then I met, you know, I had one friend who had a kid and I didn't, you know, and then I met somebody else who had a kid who kind of like they took me under their wings and kind of taught me how to be a parent. It was like a, you know, it was that I had a lot of privileges that helped me and kept me afloat. And then I was really lucky. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I I think I even say say that in the book, like I, it's like winning the lottery. Like I, for whatever reason, the alchemy worked. And I, I didn't know that that, I did not, I had no idea that last time that I used drugs in a very anticlimactic way
0: that That would be the last last time. time. So because when you were in and out of relapse and you wrote something else that I really loved, when you were in and out, in and out, in and out, leading up to getting Mm -hmm. pregnant in the years leading up to pregnant, you were in and out of 12 step, right? When you were relapsing quite a bit. And I love what you say here. When you take alcohol and drugs away, sex and love can become the brightest, shiniest and seemingly safest place to put all that energy. And Mm -hmm. the sobriety scene is a scene and it can be a scene. And there's a lot of space in 12-step for those behavioral patterns to continue with like sex and love and the yeah. drama. And and then after he was born, did you return to 12-step again after he was born mm-hmm. or you didn't? I mean, I've been to meetings okay.
1: over the years to support somebody else. Okay.
0: So what did <laughs> you like, do? No.
1: So, I mean, a lot of it was, I mean, the bulk of it for me was really Therapy and medication. Like, I mean, the medication came later because I was still like, you know, not always the most stable. (laughs) And I, you know, I think it was about this was something that I learned in the rooms of twelve step rooms of like that thing of like self esteem is built by doing esteemable things, and that really was it. I mean, I started to have self efficacy in that I, for the first time in my life, at twenty nine years old <laughs> was paying bills like paying my phone bill paying because before that like somebody else did that for me. I never even saw saw the bill right you know what I mean right I didn't have any concept of how to manage a life yeah I had to go to the grocery store and buy groceries and cook because I had a child yeah. <laughs> to feed I couldn't just starve myself and smoke cigarettes. (laughs) I couldn't do it. I had to take care of him, you know, like when he was a baby, I had to breastfeed. So I had to eat and get enough sleep and like do all those things. And then, you know, I mean, The yoga was a really big part of it for me, and it was completely accidental. The only reason that I got really into it was because they had, like, I lived there's a place in Los Angeles, there used to be in New York too, called the Golden Bridge, and they were really big. They had, at that time, they were still like in their original spot on Third Street, and I lived down the street so I could walk. I'd put Atticus in the stroller and I'd walk there, and I think it was two or three times a week. I met other moms there, and I learned how to be present in my body in a way that I couldn't do before. And it was a really, really powerful thing to be able to just be, to sit still (laughs) and be in my body. Was it hard
0: at first when you were trying to sit there and sit still and do yoga or? For sure.
1: I mean, I think that like, but I think that like what helped, helped me with it is that you know, I think I had done yoga before where it was more about, like, athleticism sure. <laughs> and, like, Kundalini is all about breath, which I'm not really good at. Like, I had pneumonia three times when I was a kid. I'm not, like, I have a sh- terrible lung capacity. I have, you know, whatever. So, like, it was challenging for me. Okay. But that was, I all I had to do is concentrate on the breath. Yeah. Whatever the breath pattern was. Right. And it could be something as simple as like sitting with your back straight and like holding and holding your arms in a certain place and then just doing like breath of fire or something. So you're just, which is very simple, but when you do it for like three minutes, your arms are like, uh, (laughs) and your arms are, you know, are just held in like a position like a little outside of you or something. That stillness and like finding your center And feeling uncomfortable in it, but you'd kind of break past a point of discomfort. And while I'm doing that, I'm not thinking about all of my bullshit because I'm concentrating on the breath. And it brings you into like being present in a way that I had never experienced before. Like I had, I just didn't know that that was what yoga was about. Right. I mean, I understood like this idea of like meditating and I had never been able to meditate And then in the Kundalini yoga classes, they would always at the end, you would lie down and have, uh, they would do the gong. And I don't know, there's something about the sound of the gong that it would have this sort of same effect of just sort of pushing away that chatter in my head and just allowing me to be present and not perfectly. It's not like thoughts didn't come in and out and really less in a way of trying to escape reality but more in a way of just being present and mindful of who you are and where you are and it was sort of like that first step and I've talked about this before I don't even know like I've written about this before talked about this before when I do like public speaking that I you know later on kind of realized that was sort of the first step for me recognizing that sort of my greatest peace and greatest sense of power was in being accept- in acceptance of who I was, who I am, and where I am, right? That's our greatest sense of, of of power. Like, when I'm in discomfort and in pain, it's because I'm not in acceptance of who I am and where I am and how things are. Yeah. And it's control. Like, all of my drug use, all of my interactions with the way I interacted with men, romantically. It's all all based around my need to control or my desire to control because I think that that's going to keep me safe. And it does the opposite, right? It's like my need to control always put me out of control. Right. Always. And so that's kind of what I always, you know, and this is something it's like <laughs> over time got e- gets easier and easier and easier. So it's you know, it was that was sort of like set me on that path and then talk therapy, some cognitive behavioral therapy done with a the therapist, which is just about retraining your neural pathways because the good thing about the brain is that even with all the damage we do, it's pretty, you know, it's a, it's got a lot of plasticity so it, it can learn, it can reroute itself. So that my, whereas before the second that I would feel like stab of, rejection or pain my go to it was like you hurt me well fuck you i'm going to self destruct <laughs> right right like yeah. it, it's like the equivalent of like you know i'd feel hurt by like my father or something and then stabbing myself right. because he because i was mad at him like you know what i mean like it's so we develop these sort of maladaptive coping mechanisms often at a really early age and then they become really challenging to break out of because they're autonomic right they're just our body just goes there our brain directs us there in big and small ways so through like cognitive behavioral therapy and that sort of mindfulness being that awareness of what's happening rather than trying to escape it gave me more and more of a sense of like power over myself. Cause that's the only thing that I have power over. I love
0: the only. Yeah. Thing. I love that. I think that's so beautiful. Like that's the journey, right? I feel like that's like, <laughs> that's such the journey. And it does say, cause and I've heard you say this before that your roots in 12 step, you really still value. And I know it says, in Oh, of course. Like, you know, what is it? Anytime I find myself upset, it's because something somewhere is not in accordance with my, like what I want, basically. Right. And that I love how you just said that. Like, Because when you're controlling everything around you and that's how you feel safe, you're actually not safe because if you ever relinquish that control, if you can't control the circumstances, what we're saying is that the circumstances affect us, right? and and so it's releasing all of that power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the power is to my circumstances, not to me. And you didn't know any of that at the time. It's not like you were doing yoga realizing, oh, this is really going to be good (laughs) for me to quit doing drugs. You just must have enjoyed how it felt in the moment, and it slowly started to build up a feeling of serenity and peace that lasted you know
1: right and i think that like you know it's like it's always like the resistance to reality is like what puts us in pain and that doesn't mean that like when i say that i don't mean that like you know obviously like i was talking about this today i've had like a lot of people like die in the past year like just i don't know if it's like the age like there are a lot of people who are only a little bit older than me that are like having heart attacks and strokes and who've been sober for a long time and like just dying of natural causes and it's that thing it's not like I don't feel pain over those things or grieve but it's there's sort of that sort of like soul pain (laughs) when you're trying to resist the reality of how things are and and that just improved it's like it's like time and practice and and I don't know you know so it was kind of like all of those sorts of things fell into place me- the mental health part was a huge yeah. aspect for me and and you know i have nothing bad to say about 12 steps like it saved my life when i you know first entered 12 step program but it just didn't end up being what i ultimately needed right. and i think that that this this part of it has changed at the time there weren't other options really You know, now there's like smart recovery and Dharma recovery and other kind of peer support groups that that have slightly different models, you know. But I had so much shame because, you know, and even like I've talked to people who I have friends who are like in recovery in 12 steps now who like are like They're like, you know, but maybe if you, you know, like, do you think that if you had worked the steps, like, did you really work them to like the best of your ability? And I'm like, when I tell you, like, I was desperate. I worked the steps. I had a sponsor. I did the 90 meetings in 90 days. I did, you know, I couldn't, I had so, you know, I had this trauma that like those meetings weren't going to fix. Right. Yeah. Right. And I really needed professional help (laughs) getting through those. And, yeah, so it's just it was just a different a different path. And I think that it's okay for people to say that, like it wasn't good for me because I have I relapsing so much. like I didn't count days. I didn't do you know, I was just like, whatever, right <laughs> just, and I'm you just,
0: you kind of still don't,
1: right? I still don't because I was like, and I tell people this now, like who, you know, I've known so many people who had like time, and like maybe they like slipped, but it wasn't like, you know, I'm like, so that's a slip. So you're going to tell me that, like, one day has erased, like, the six years you put into recovery? No. Right. And this is, I don't feel that you start over. Right. I really don't. Right. I did, that's the part that really bothers me because, you know, sure, there are some times that on the on the heels of a relapse, maybe somebody needs to start over from the beginning. Sure. But I think that that also hinders a lot of Absolutely. people. Because the humiliation and shame of having to do that and stand up as a newcomer and take a newcomer chip and all of that is really for some people can be really, really, can be a barrier to like getting the help that they need. And so, yeah, I didn't, I still like, I think my, my date is March 5th and I know it, like, I just always have to look up when the LA, like when I can't remember the exact date, I look up when the LA Marathon was because it was two days after the LA Marathon in 2003. (laughs) That's how I remember. So I think it's March 5th, Okay, okay, (laughs) but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Right. I'd have to look it up on my computer and see like, was it, what date was the LA Marathon? So yes, it was about March 5th. I
0: think it's what we're, I think more and more people too are learning that it's like what works for you. You know what I mean? Totally. This, this has obviously 100%. worked for you. And you define recovery in yeah. a really cool way in the book too. You say recovery is taking back ownership of your life. Mm-hmm. That's a recovered life, whatever that yes. is. And that may be outside right. the bounds of a 12-step definition. For and sure, I because agree I don't, with that. I don't, con-
1: Recovery is an abstinence. Right. There are plenty of people of, who are abstinent who are not in
0: recovery, right. who do not have control of their lives. consider yeah.
1: Who are not, reco- you know, actively in recovery. Right. And there are many people. I, so many people I know who got sober in the '90s that like drink or smoke pot or do whatever they do now, and to- their lives are and their fine. lives are fine. And I'm not saying I'm not saying that as like a green light to people right. in any way right. because it's a, there's a risk. And everybody's situation is different. But my point is, is that recovery doesn't have to look like any one thing. I don't care if somebody is on Suboxone for the rest of their lives. They're still in recovery. They're able, you know, I, I did a this series of um videos for like Condé Nast a few years ago. And one of the people there, she was like a stay-at-home mom who started misusing opioids, like pills, like after a c-section and then like it just like spiraled completely out of control over the course of a few years and she has been on suboxone god now i think she's probably been on it for like 14 years i want to say and people have judgment about that and i'm like but she's like she has not used she's happy i mean not that she's i shouldn't say she's happy i mean she's living like she's living a recovered life a life that a recovered life and like it's like, I think that sometimes people feel threatened if they think that, like, they want recovery to be in a box because they're afraid that if it's not, that they might slip outside of that box and that might fuck them up. And it might. That's why it shouldn't. It's really like an individual thing.
0: I think it also could be a little envy, too, right? Yeah. Because like, it's like, wait a minute, yeah. you're saying to me, if you smoke weed every once in a while, but I feel like I can't then no, right. you're not this. This still puts right. me at a level up over someone else, right? Right, And, right. and I right. see that as that's, someone there's... who is abstinent. And I still can right. recognize, though, that that's probably where someone may totally. feel that, You know what I mean? It's like, well... Oh, 100%. You know, like, they get to drink every once in a while, but I don't. And like, so that's our right. that recovery. You know what I mean? I I, I think right. that that feeds into that, too, a little bit. But yeah, this is sure. thing in particular, really, like that... Because I, I had another guest on the show say that You know, physical dependence doesn't equal addiction.
1: Not at all because like this is also totally which is why like people who are in pain should be given pain medication. This idea that like everybody, it's like drug seeking behavior. They're trying not to be in pain. And like they might be physically dependent on pain medication because of whatever whatever reason issue is.
0: That's none of my business. It's also, yeah, that's not I I think addiction is characterized by chaos in life, the pursuit of something despite massive Mm -hmm. consequences, financial chaos. You know, there are characteristics around addiction. And I I know this is like an overplayed example, but I think it's true. There are people that have to have insulin every single day. Yeah. Addicts. Are you a drug right. addict because you have to have insulin? Like, like no. no. You know what I mean? I don't have
1: a, so I don't have a thyroid, right? I had I have no thyroid. So I take synthroid every single day. I am physically dependent on that synthroid right. for my body to function. I am not addicted to right. it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And and it's funny because there's people I was like, I have a friend who um she has had like major back issues since she was a kid, like like an actual issue like in her spine. She had to have surgery again not that long ago and like maybe five, six years ago and was on pain medication like during it. And she's always said, she's like, I don't, she's like, I, you know, like I get like it kind of makes you like drowsy and like blah, blah, blah. She's like, but I don't like feel like that's not like something I would like seek out. You know what I mean? (laughs) And, you know, cause opiates affect people differently. Same thing. My mom's always like, oh, it doesn't even, I don't even feel anything if I've taken a Vicodin. I'm like, that is so weird. But I kind of understand yeah. it because I'll, I'll tell you why in a second. So my friend was like, she's like, God, she's like, when she had to come off of it, like how hard that was on her physically, and so then she, you know, her point being that she can only imagine like when somebody's coming out of an addiction, how hard it is because it does fuck with your head and da da da. My thing now, I've had, I've had morphine, I've had, you know, dilaudid, I've had plenty of things with surgeries in the last twenty years. I feel like I used up every like fun receptor I had because (laughs) it's like, I don't even get like, I could feel like, you know, I could feel something from it, but then it like, I'm drowsy and sleepy and nauseous. And then like nothing, like Like, like, it doesn't. And it stopped working for me really before I stopped using too. I wasn't even getting the relief that I was seeking anymore. It was It was kind of
0: heartbreaking at
1: the time (laughs) to like relapse and then be like, "It's not even, it's not even working."
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's true. I've had to have pain medication too a couple of times from Mm -hmm. surgeries and felt fine, didn't feel. Do you know what I mean? Like, I also think it's because we genuinely needed them and we're in pain, and so maybe it wasn't totally. You know what I mean? It didn't hit that sensor, but like, I'm also my and I'm so grateful for my sponsor because she's very Mm -hmm. like with that kind of thing. She's like, you know, there's no need to like be a hero after a surgery and just grit no, through the pain. because that's how people end up relaxing. Right, you also, I your mean, body can't is, heal when you're in pain. If you're in stress, no. you can't heal properly.
1: Totally. I always tell people like stay ahead of the pain for the first 72 hours or 48 hours, whatever. And that's like I when I had surgery last year, I mean, I still have like, I think they're, they're like the immediate release Oxycontin, Roxy. Yeah. I, Right, yeah, whatever. I still have like a bottle. I have we have a safe that we keep medication, and I was probably expired now. I should throw it out. It's been there for so long because I like I took it the first like day and then I got home from the hospital and then I was just like, mm. it wasn't really helping that much with the pain, yeah, it, it makes me feel very depressed because there's something about it where my brain immediately like relates with like feeling. Terrible. Oh, <laughs> so interesting. Okay. I think that's part of it. Like I feel very depressed. Oh, interesting. Very depressed. So then I was like, fuck it. Like, I'm just gonna stop taking them. Like, I got like so like got C B D and I like yeah. you know, ibuprofen, yeah. and it was fine. Yeah. And like, you know, in the hospital, I needed it. I needed it that first day, and then I was fine. Right. But I was gonna say something. Oh, so the other thing I was just gonna say is that so as my recovery has progressed, like you know, I wasn't on on medication. And then I finally went back on Wellbutrin and I don't know why I suffered through (laughs) so much time not on Wellbutrin because it's, I mean, it's just, it just is a game changer for me. And then, you know, so I take Wellbutrin and I also take medication for ADHD and I know that's very controversial in 12 steps. Uh, It depends. I mean, but in some 12 step circles, it's controversial. And it's funny because I was talking to somebody about it. Who was I talking to about it? maybe it was just my husband, (laughs) Uh, but uh, he also has ADHD, but I was talking about how like there's, there's so many restrictions on how they distributed and all of that. And, and I've like managed to stay on a very low dose because I don't, I don't take it every day. I take it when I know that I'm going to be working, which is writing. And like I, it doesn't in any way make me feel high and I've never abused it. And I, I was like, and I know that like, there's plenty of people who can't take it because they do have a tendency to abuse it or whatever. But you know, the difference in my brain, like being properly medicated, just my behavior is so different because I'm not struggling against this sort of essential issue. And it's no surprise to me that Wellbutrin worked so well because it's they, you know, it's kind of like a poor substitute for ADHD. Right. Yeah. Meds, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it does have a slight a slight stimulant focused. effect. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why it was the only one that ever worked for me. Like SSRIs made me feel suicidal. My point being <laughs> that for anybody who is in recovery at whatever stage, like it's really, I think it's really important to have, you know, and I know this is easier said than done, but having a psychiatrist who is well-versed in whatever your particular issue is and in addiction. Like my psychiatrist is somebody who really knows and treats ADHD very holistically and also understands and treats addiction very holistically. So it feels like that's a very important piece of the puzzle with medication absolutely and i think that so that's what i mean so there's people who be like oh well you take adderall so you're not you're not clean
0: that's not recovery i'm like no my sponsor said the other day actually we were talking about this the other day and she was like no addiction means you can't take the amount you're supposed to yeah that would be addiction and i'm like that's a quite simple way of describing it and she was like it's quite simple an addict can't take the amount they're supposed to and yeah, like, I mean – That's a really good way to the- just break it down. Are you taking the amount you're supposed to? 100%. Cool. You know what I mean?
1: 100%. Yeah. I'm so I grateful know. for
0: her because she has – because, you know, I do still do the 12-step thing and it can get like super mm-hmm. dogmatic and, right. you know, and she's always there to be like, she's got 10 years, she's great, a lot of serenity, lives mm-hmm. the program, mm-hmm. and fully absent herself, but will be like, oh, mm-hmm. and, you know – what's the motivation, blah, 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 blah. You right. know what I mean? Like that's really what it kind of breaks down to. Totally.
1: And I think that for people who are in early recovery and ha- and take medication – the smartest thing is is if you have somebody, like whether it's a roommate or a partner or, you know, whoever you're living with, a parent, whatever, if you can have somebody sort of hold your medication right. for yes. you and dispense it to yes. you in early recovery, great. Right. That's awesome. I do like, still do
0: that. Like uh, when did yeah. I needed pain medication for something? I had like six years. I still gave them to my mom. Mm-hmm. And she was like, if you're in enough yeah. pain, you can come get them. You know what I mean? And I got like right. two or three at a time after like a surgery or something. And then the last thing I want to ask you about, because I know I've I've mm-hmm. spoken with you forever. So thank you so it's, much for your me time. too. I'm real chatty. <laughs> I am too. I am too. I am too. And, I,
1: and just for the record, I have not taken any Adderall <laughs> today. This, this is just how I am normally. You could <laughs> have and I'd be fine with it. <laughs> I'm probably way less. I'm like, I think that I'm like
0: mellower when I take yeah, it. Yeah, right. Oh. That's really funny. So in recovery, you got a little bit lost, and mm-hmm. ended up finding your calling. And I love the way that you wrote this. And I think this is so important. This is something I talk a lot about on my show because a lot of our mm-hmm. listeners are like, like you and me, real, real, mm-hmm. you know, not like there's not a real addict, but you know what I mean? The the right. IV use. They've been through it's, it. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yes. It's, we're all on the same, like the darker journey, right? And you wrote, somebody said to you, you just need to find the thing that makes you want to get up in the morning. The thing that makes you feel alive, mm-hmm. not a person, but a calling. And Mm -hmm. I love that because this time I think what worked for me was the fitness studio that I worked at. It really Mm -hmm. became my whole – it's my calling to also be in fitness and to some extent speaking on the addiction side of things as well like this, but like fitness. And you discovered – you went back to writing at that time, right? And Mm -hmm. it got you through a period of your recovery that had gotten a little bit dicey, right? If you could just talk about that and that's what you do now too.
1: Yeah. So yeah, I mean I was – You know, it was like I had – I had a clothing line that had some success but then like t- in 2008 like as the economy kind of tanked I had like, a really big account that didn't pay and, you know, whatever. It was, like, I just got to the point where I was, like, I was going to have to borrow money to keep the company going even though I was in Barney's. I still had to, like, somehow, like, borrow money to keep it going. And I was, like, you know what? I don't really want to do this. So I started working in production again as a production coordinator and kind of, like, figuring out what I wanted to do. I was, like, in an on-again, off-again relationship that, like, I mean, it wasn't, it was fine. Like, we're still really good friends. (laughs) But it was not a healthy relationship. I wasn't healthy. I was acting out in, like, sort of emotionally manipulative ways. And, like, and just, I still had so much self-hatred. I was not on Wellbutrin at the time. And just feeling like, just feeling like I, you know, feeling, having, like, suicidal ideation. And, like, you know, I felt so lost. Like, I just, you know... I was like, okay, I'm in my 30s. Like, what the hell am I going to do with my life? And had this, like, chance encounter with somebody who was a writer. And we had spent this, like, whole day together. It was, like, somebody my friend was, like, on a date with. And he was like, you know, you... He's like, you should write. I really think you should write. You're a writer. And, like, I'm not a writer. And then I, like... I don't know what made me do it, but I like went home and like started a blog. Oh, wow. And then I looked into school and I was like, I'm going to go back to school and I'm going to finish my degree because I was so close <laughs> and focus on writing. And that's kind of what started it. Yeah. And then as I started, I started like on my blog in 2009, an advice column and called Ask Aaron. And yeah, I mean, I don't even know how people found it really. I mean, you know, my friends read it and stuff, but it grew and grew. And then I moved it to a website called Ravishly in 2014. 15 15 something like that. And then it was there for a long time until 2020 and then now I have a Substack and like you know at the height of the column I had like a half a million readers a month when it was on Ravishly Whoa. and now with the Substack I have like 10,000 subscribers which you know is great yeah. but it's not not a half million but but yeah I've been doing that since then and I just realized like the more that I was transparent about my past yeah. and and things I had gone through that like it resonated with people. And I felt like, it just felt like, a. it felt like a, there was a purpose, yeah. right? It felt like I had an opportunity to help people and in doing that, like help myself. And, you know, as you know, like in 12-step programs, a big part of it is like being of service. And and I always go back to that. Like when, when I feel depressed about like things in, that are happening politically, or when I feel like, you know, I'm struggling with something in my own life, I go back to like a very basic way of sort of just helping somebody else, whether it's just having a conversation with one of the unhoused people who lives in my neighborhood or going. And I used to do this lunch program, which they actually just relaunched post-COVID. Every Sunday we would make lunches for 500 unhoused people. And it's a very simple thing, but like, it's like those sort of like simple actions that, Get you out of yourself and that you always feel better afterwards because you're contributing something yeah. and contributing something to your community gives you a sense of self efficacy and self esteem. And those are huge because most people who come into recovery are coming from a place where they don't feel like they have self efficacy and self esteem, even if they'd been on the streets hustling and like every day for drugs and doing what they had to do to get drugs in like a normal operating circumstances, they don't feel like they have that. And I mean, I certainly didn't. I didn't
0: either. And that's a good point because we do have hustle after we've been like homeless, but it still feels like because it was outside the bounds of like the social contract. So it doesn't feel when you come in, it took me years to look back and be like, no, I was actually kind of learning some stuff out there, but it certainly doesn't feel like it when you come in. So you know, last question I want to ask you. I actually have two last questions. If somebody is stuck in the relapse, in and out, kind of going to meetings, getting some time, Mm -hmm. kicking, stopping, kicking, coming back, meetings, meetings, what would you, what like advice would you give them? Mm -hmm. And then if somebody also, a separate question, finds themselves in the, in recovery or in sobriety, Mm -hmm. in the relationship Maladaptive behaviors, Mm -hmm. the cheating, the lying, the manipulating, blah blah blah. blah. Both of those two things, and they want to stop. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give in those two different scenarios? So, for somebody who's
1: like in like you know like an unending cycle of relapse, and I have somebody who's close to me who has been going through this, and I always my the first thing that I always go to is to try something different because, like the I have a friend who's been going through like a lot of relapsing and has gone, you know, gone in and out of inpatient and outpatient programs. And they've, you know, they're, they're in 12 steps and have a sponsor and like work the steps and do all the things, but it's not really working. And they had time at one point. And then, you know, ever since a relapse, it's just, it's just been like cycling. And I think that I said to them, this was actually this morning (laughs) that, you know, you don't have to give up 12 step meetings, try something else. Yeah. I don't know. I don't really know that much about smart recovery and Dharma recovery, but try them. I have other friends who tried them and really like them. Yeah. Maybe you need something different. Maybe you need to try something like you know incorporating some sort of spiritual practice, whether it's going and and learning Buddhist meditation or whether it's like going and doing tai chi in the park every morning or what. I, I think that you need something different, something a little outside the box, because you know all of that stuff to do, and you don't have to stop doing it. Right. But you need something more, right. okay? I like that, or something different, okay? And I think that like you know, I think that like I was so afraid when I was kind of in and out, in and out, in and out, and in 12-step program to, like, divert, like, because it was so drilled into my head that, like, if you're not in the rooms, you're going to die. Right. Like, if you're not in the rooms, you're fucked, you know? And I don't, that's obviously not true right. for me, and right. it's not true for a lot of people I know. And that's not to knock them. I think 12-step programs are great, and they're really, really helpful. I refer people to them all the time. Right, but. You know, I've got. I, I went to. I've gone to a lot of Al-Anon meetings in the last twenty. Way more Al-Anon meetings than I did. You know, I didn't. I wasn't going anymore for myself to like AA or NA, but would go to like Al-Anon. I think that like you know, it's it's just trying something different. And then for me, it was also scheduling my time so that even if I didn't have a job, I really scheduled out my time. Okay. And by that and that I know understand that that takes it takes effort. But like once you get in the habit of doing it, it's so easy now with the way we live with like our phones and, and computers to like schedule everything. And like so you make sure that like so if you're just doing 12 steps that you do like, you know, do however many meetings a day you need to do. Reaching out to the people that you know. I went to, in my early sobriety when I was pregnant, I went to so many movies. I saw every movie that came out in that spring and summer of 2003 because I just needed to fill the time. I needed to, I would go to a movie, dark movie theater by myself, sometimes with friends, sometimes by myself. And I would get, you know, a bunch of junk food. And I was certainly using food a little bit as a crutch because yeah. I was like, fuck it, I'm pregnant. I still I'm, do. Eh, you know, I still I had, do. Because I had to, like, I had to quit. You know, yeah. I also was like quitting smoking. I quit everything. Yeah. So it was like, what am I going to do? I just allowed myself to do that. And I think that, like, it's okay, especially in early recovery, like, eat the tub of ice cream. Yeah. Fuck it. Yeah. Like, it's okay. Yeah. It's okay to do that. I love it's that. It's okay to smoke. It's okay. Yeah. Like, it's totally whatever okay it is, to smoke. Yeah. Yes. So, yes. scheduling
0: your time daily. I really, really like that idea.
1: And then like what I, I say this for anybody, but I think it's really helpful in recovery. And I still do this. Like when I'm in like crisis, like something has happened and I'm in like a crisis point, I make to-do lists that are very, very basic where I'm like, you know, like I'd like to say it's 8am, but like my kid gets up so early. So I'm, you know, like 6 30am, like wake up, like, you know, brush teeth, like, you know, unload the dishwasher, make your bed. I started making, so one, this sounds so stupid, but I started making my bed and I never used to make my bed. And I started making my bed every morning, right. When I get up. Okay. I let that bed like air out for like 10 minutes and then I make the bed. <laughs> yeah. And I stopped using a top sheet because I realized that like having just a duvet with a cover on it. Easier to make. And I'd wash my yeah. wash my sheets every week. So, you know, yeah. like wash my duvet cover every week, doing that and like just like starting to care for my environment in a way that okay. I hadn't before yeah. because I realized that the more that I care, like made my space not chaotic.
0: Yeah, it helped me as well. Oh, like, that totally makes sense. I'm still really bad about and that. Then, My place is a. And shill. then it's all
1: about like for me, it's like it's all like I think for a lot of people, and I think a lot of people with addiction also have ADHD. And it's funny because like for years, I know I'm going off on a tangent. No, sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> for for years, I thought that like I had like you know I had so many diagnoses over the yeah. years. Of, you know so borderline personality disorder again and again, bipolar disorder, major depressive disorder, anxiety disorder, OCD. I mean, it's so many different diagnoses and the psychiatrist I have now, like when I first started seeing him, he's like, I really, you know, I, have you ever been evaluated for ADHD? And I'm like, no, I'm like, I don't, I don't have that, (laughs) you know? And, and then I realized that when we did, like, some of the sort of, like, the, he took me through, like, this whole, like, these lengthy diagnostic things. I was like, oh, my God. Like, I realized that, like, all of my stuff wasn't serotonin-seeking. It was dopamine-seeking. Oh. So now I'm all about dopamine hacks. I'm like, to-do list, fastest dopamine hack. If you put a list of 10 things that are super, super basic, you get a dopamine hit from checking off those things on your list like making the bed brushing your teeth okay. unloading the dishwasher okay. brushing your hair going for a walk i mean like p- like back to basics drinking like putting like th- the app on my phone to remind myself to drink water so that every time i fill up another little thing on the glass that's a joke yeah a totally i got really into like <laughs> organizing my house and like i would avoid it like before i would avoid it cuz it was overwhelming and then things would be chaotic and then i couldn't think and i'd feel overwhelmed and now I do like twice a year, I like make a list of like every little thing in the house that I want to organize. And I don't do it all in one day. I do it over the course of like a month. <laughs> I guess I do it like once a year. But then if things, you know, sometimes I have to revisit an area. But like right now I have a list. And like the other day I did two of like our kitchen drawers, the one that has like snacks, <laughs> this like big out drawer and one that has like my son, like my little ones, like, you know, cute cups and stuff for school and like his drawer and so you take everything out vacuum the inside wipe everything down get rid of stuff we don't need anymore organize it it sounds (laughs) and dave from dopey will laugh he's like laughs at me because when i redid my refrigerator (laughs) like in like in 2021 like i like redid or not twenty, yeah was it or beginning of 2022 i like went on this big kick of like reorganizing everything. And he's like, this is crazy. And I'm like,
0: but no, you know, I can't imagine him doing dopamine. that, but he also doesn't have to because his partner probably does it for him. Yeah. Okay. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know that, but I, if I, if I had to guess, I would think that that, you know, but that right. does make sense to me. And I really need to do that. I live in such chaos and I love the idea of like the hacking dopamine. So organizing stuff, mm-hmm. do you have another favorite organizing. hack, another favorite dopamine so- hack? With the scheduling thing,
1: like I like, you can do that. People like to do, I can't do bullet journals. I'm not that artistic, like with like drawing and stuff. So I don't do that. I just have like, you know, like a planner where I do it like on the weekend. I'll sit down and like look at the week ahead. Sometimes I'll like print out my little calendar for my computer for the week so that I make sure I'm not missing anything. Okay. And then I just kind of, I do that same thing of like blocking out time, like the time that I'm dropping my kid at school, the time I have to leave to pick him up and the things in between, like, you know, doing the podcast right. today, you know, at 10 AM this morning, I had like my writer's group. So we met up to do that. And like, just it's the same, like there's there is a dopamine hit for me in just checking off, yeah, totally those little no, that things, makes sense. and then, for sure, like I know, like my psychiatrist has helped so much with this is, you know, being really conscious of making sure that I eat, okay. And being conscious of what I'm eating because of how, like, I can crash afterwards. And then when you have the blood sugar crash, it brings your dopamine down. Okay, Doing, like, um, having lots of little breaks throughout the day so that, like – this is going to sound so nerdy – I have, like, I really like to do jigsaw puzzles. It's something that I only discovered a couple years ago. (laughs) Like, my dad is a big jigsaw person. I was like, whatever. And then one day I started doing one and I was like, oh, my God. I got that, like, ADD hyper focus on it. And I was like, this is brilliant. (laughs) I love it so much. Oh, that's cool. I don't. It's it for me. It's like meditation. I don't think about anything else. I'm not worried. I'm just like, and I have to put a timer because otherwise I could stay there for like an hour, but that's I'll, hilarious. I'll just, that's really put, funny. I, like my routine right now is I like get up in the morning, <laughs> you know, my kid gets up, I get him breakfast. I make his lunch, unload the dishwasher. Then I make my coffee and then I sit down for like 15 minutes I have a puzzle board that I can store under the couch, put it on the dining room <laughs> table, do my puzzle for like 15 minutes. And like, that is just me time. Oh, that's really
0: cool. And then like,
1: if I'm having a really hard day or if I've been like writing and I need like a break, I'll give myself 20 minutes. I put my headphones on, listen to a podcast or an audiobook and do my puzzle. That's really cool. And there's, there's something about like, it's getting my brain engaged. It gives me dopamine because I'm filling in the little puzzle pieces. And it's giving me a break from the other world I'm going to
0: try that. And then, I'm going to order one on and Amazon then, and try that. I'm telling you, I, I can send
1: you a link to the puzzle board too, because that was a game changer for me because I was like, where am I going to put oh, this? Oh, I see what you're saying. Gonna okay, jump. I want the link the for the board. going to jump on that. Yes, okay. I'm going to send you the link for the board. Okay. <laughs> and sometimes they're on sale. Okay. To, they're like I think I think full price, it's like seventy nine dollars. Okay, okay. If I'm correct, around that. But sometimes they're like on. You know, Amazon has okay. like a flash deal okay. for like less. But <laughs> so worth it. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> I, there's a method to my madness. <laughs> but and then you know and then you probably know this already from being involved with fitness. It's like exercise right. and like. One of the most effective things for people who, if you have troubles with, trouble with concentration or you have like diagnosed ADHD, something that's really, really helpful is to take a break and do not like an hour of exercise, but like either like 10 to 20 minutes brisk walk. You could do little Pilates, yoga at home. I have, there is a YouTube channel for this guy called the Fitness Marshal who does like this like cardio, like dance stuff. Okay. And He's like this, like like really boisterous gay man in Hollywood, and he has like his backup dancers, and they they like go and like film shit on the top of Runyon Canyon, and like does like you know like a whole like you know you you want to dance to Britney Spears like he's got a whole list of them oh, that's Madonna, cool. got it, you know whatever it is, yeah, and it's I don't know like it's it's so it, I need those things in my brain where I'm just kind of concentrating on something yeah. And with that. Rather than just regular exercise, right. the thing that I like about that, which I've worked with a trainer before too, and that is the same kind of thing, because I'm like concentrating on form and like what I'm doing. But dancing and like trying, you know, like he takes you through the choreography, and then you're doing the choreography. Right. Your brain is engaged in this way where you're not thinking like, oh, I'm exercising, right? <laughs> totally. Nor totally is your brain worried about, about other anything things. or wandering. You're just focused yeah. on the thing that's in front of you. Yeah. And then the last thing, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> going on. I asked, I asked, me, I wanted to know. <laughs> <laughs> for me, a horseback riding is another right, okay. really, which I started. So it was a big part of like my youth. And then during the pandemic, I started riding again. I have to find a new barn because my trainer moved and da, da, da. So I haven't ridden for like nine months, but it really, I r- remembered like, it's like, Trauma therapy and meditation and physical exercise, like all in one. I forgot what an insane core workout it is, and how when I'm doing it, I'm just not thinking of anything else because it's all about lifting up nonverbal community. Right. It's well, it's all about holding your center and Mm -hmm. holding your core and all of it is nonverbal communication with a prey animal, right? And the reason that horses are so good for, for trauma therapy is that they're prey animals. So they're so sensitive to energy and it's a two way thing. So you have to build trust with them as they build trust with you. Oh, Interesting. And it's, there is something I, I cannot explain it other than you become very connected and in tune. And like, granted, like there are a lot of horse industries, particularly with racing and things that have high potential for abuse. But there is also horsemanship where you have a horse who enjoys doing the kind of yeah. activity that keeps their brain active and that you have like this sort of symbiotic relationship. Okay. And there's there's something really amazing about being on a 1,200-pound animal and being able to just, all you're doing, you don't have any movement but to just shift your weight in a way that is invisible yeah. and to not by moving your head, but to just look in a direction and that that animal knows exactly what you want. That's it to That's cool. That's nonverbal communication, right? Yeah, There is. And that's even, you don't even have to get on a horse to do that. Yeah. But I think that that's part of the reason that animals are so therapeutic is that they're tuned into energy yeah. in a way that we're not because yeah. they don't have the chatter That we have, they don't have, and they don't have the ability to communicate with words with us either. So they have, they're constantly, you know, their ears. You watch animals like their ears; they're constantly turning into like any sort of variation in like tone of voice. Any, you know what I mean? And that that's so valuable because when you kind of recognize that in an animal, they also recognize it in you. I had one, I'll just share one last little thing about a horse (laughs) that I, when I was riding again, there was this horse Mikey that I was riding and he's just like, you know, he's like older horse, big old warm blood that really, you know, like super mellow, whatever. And I, I don't even remember what it was now, but there was something, it was somebody died or I had found something out that was like really upsetting. I was having a really hard day. And as I was putting him, putting him back, he, in his turnout, I had just take like I took his halter off and I was like getting ready to go. And I kind of just like pat, you know, I was like, you know, bye Mikey. And then I started walking away and I, he was like walking behind me and like I turned around and he just put his head right here and just was like, and just like rested there. But it was like, I can't tell you how many times this has happened with horses. Like they know, like, I felt like he knew I needed a hug. And it was just that sort of like, there's just something really amazing about that sort of pure energy exchange that happens with animals. And so if you can do something, I mean, maybe animals aren't your thing, but if you like animals, go volunteer at a shelter, go, you know, you can, there are plenty, there are, equine therapy programs for kids with disabilities that you can go volunteer i had a friend who when he was in early recovery yeah. was doing that oh like that's one really of his cool was that he made a commitment so that to is accessible so people can do that that's accessible Palsy. yeah on horses okay and he wasn't even a horse person but he just liked being around the horses so like if you because horseback riding is very expensive so like one way to do it is like to find an organization that, you know, or even if you can't, you know, you can't really have a pet right now, go volunteer. There's so many different places, you know, like in L.A., you could go volunteer at the gentle barn that, that rescues like un- neglected yeah. farm animals. Yeah, totally. And, and they it's a great place. I used to take Atticus there when he was little. And
0: and the <laughs> other question was, if somebody is no, no, stuck no. in the behavior <laughs> of the relationship stuff, even it's right, what would you recommend if somebody's like, dude, I'm not acting right. right. I need to act yes. right.
1: <laughs> well, I mean. I do think like, I mean, if you do 12 steps or even if you don't right? Slaw, yeah. like Sex okay. and Love Addiction Anonymous is a really good program. I think that it's like you apply whatever your sort of modality okay. for recovery is, is like applying the same, the same. Like principle. Um, yeah.
0: Principles or methods to your behavior there. too. So, if that makes sense. Yeah.
1: So like Right. So like, you know, whether if you're just doing therapy, like addressing it in therapy, if you're in 12 steps, 12 steps on that specific area, because it's the same. I mean, it is so connected. It is so, so connected and, and accepting that too. Right. Because I think that like, especially for women, you know, I mean, I had like shame about like my behavior around men and sex. And like, you know, I think that I think almost every negative review of my book has mentioned that like, ugh, she had too many boyfriends, she had too much sex. There was too much. Oh sp- my gosh. You know, like how many STDs does she have? Like, yeah. Really? And I'm like, I think that's so funny because I'm like, I'm like, yes, like I know that there are a lot of men in and out of the book because I was caught, const- you know, it was like, this is so why I'm talking did. about this it. This was yeah. part of my illness. <laughs> right? Yeah. This was part yeah. of the pathology of my behavior and like it really that yeah. bothers people, way right? More yeah, that's than the fact
0: fascinating. That, I that is funny. <laughs> Which I that's think funny.
1: Is so funny. And I don't know. I don't know if it would be the same for. I don't think they
0: do. I don't. Know I don't if think men they do. get comments
1: like that if they're.
0: There wasn't even that much. No, there wasn't that much. It's not like Amy's book. You know, Amy Dresner, right? Her book. Like, there's way more sex in that. You know what I mean? Yes, like, of course. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Like, that's what bothered people. So, well, speaking of your book, where can everybody find you, (laughs) connect with you, find your book?
1: Sure. So my book's available, like, wherever books are sold, independent bookstores, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, you know, Apple Books, Audible, (laughs) wherever you like to consume books, uh, libraries. And then I'm just at my name, Erin Carr.com is my website that has, like, links to everything else and everywhere on social media. I'm at Aaron okay, Carr cool. and then my okay. sub stack is just asking. Well,
0: Aaron. thank you so much for your time. I really, really, really appreciate it.
1: You're so welcome. Thank you
0: so much.